0: Thanks for tuning in to the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Kevin Nathan of NBC Connecticut. For 22 years, Kevin worked in the sports department for the station, covering all things Connecticut sports, from UConn and the Whalers, to our regional professional teams, to Connecticut athletes competing in the Olympics. Kevin Nathan saw it all during his time here in sports. Recently, Kevin has transitioned from sports to anchoring the 4 and 5.30 p.m. evening newscasts. During our interview, we talk about some of the most memorable stories he covered during his time in sports, what it's like to cover an Olympics, the future of Connecticut sports, and we do get a bit into his transition from sports to news. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, with Kevin Nathan, who's with NBC Connecticut, had 22 years of sports experience here, so who better to talk to uh, about Connecticut sports with than Kevin?
1: So. Jared, I've known you since you were like four years old. <laughs> I know. I mean, how old are you now? I'm twenty six now. So it, I think that's so 26 twenty six minus 22, twenty two four. I see I had the map you had, right. You had it spot on you were stalking me, you know, when I was like uh thirty years old doing this. Look at that. But you were my favorite stalker oh. because you were into sports. And you were passionate, and it's fun that we've continued this relationship all these years later. Yeah,
0: it's great, and uh, Kevin's always got great advice, so he's a great resource here. So why don't you talk a bit about how you got started in sports broadcasting, and what led you here to NBC Connecticut?
1: Sure, I mean, I was one of those rare people who at about 10 years old knew what I wanted to do, and and looking back, what a blessing, because I have three kids now, my son is 21 years old, He's had three internships, and he's not exactly sure what he wants to do, and it, it. I was very lucky in that sense. So with that, I decided to go to a school where I could actually play some sports. So I went to Dickinson D3 in Pennsylvania, played football and baseball. Did the internships that you typically do to get into broadcasting, put a horrific resume tape together. I mean horrible. Slumping in a chair in a living room with my dad's friend John Rowland, who is his best buddy happened to be the anchorman at Fox Five in New York. And there's John all polished. Here I am with Kevin Nathan. And uh, you know, what do you think, Kevin, about your career? And I said, Well, experience is experience, John. You can't teach experience. Of course I'm slouching in my chair and I have no experience. Um but from there. Got my first on-air job at, at WIVN in Martinsburg, West Virginia, a startup Fox affiliate. Jay Crawford, who went on to ESPN fame, was our sports director. Jay left to go to Fox 61. I inherited the sports job, director job, with a great friend, Jamie Staten, in the sports department, is now the sports director at MUR in Manchester. And from there it was Utica, New York, Huntington, West Virginia, where Randy Moss was playing some high school football. Um, and then got to Hartford in 96, and I've and loved it here. It's been a great place to work and raise a family.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about what the sports scene was like in Connecticut when you started, and it's quite different than what it is today. At that point, UConn hadn't won any anything, really, in terms of national championships. The Whalers were still here. What was it like coming down to the sports scene at that time here?
1: So I got here in August of 96, which would end up being the Whalers' final season. Didn't know it right at that time. So that was a difficult season because you had people who were so passionate about the Wailers, watching them leave. I didn't have that vested interest. I didn't quite realize what we were losing at that point. So that, you know, the UConn women had won one national championship in 95 undefeated season, but, you know, they didn't have 10 or 11 or whatever it is with Geno now. And the storyline with Jim Calhoun then was, you know, kind of like a golfer, like maybe the best coach in college basketball, not to get to a Final Four. And I know, I know Coach Calhoun, who I love and adore, you know, at the time didn't want to hear that, but he eventually obviously broke through, uh, got to his first Final Four in 99 and won the whole thing. And it was the first of four titles for the men, so it was it was different in that sense. And you know, no one knew what a a yard goat was then. Uh, The Travelers were not associated with a golf tournament. It has changed, but from a regional standpoint, Red Sox, Yankees were big then. They're probably even bigger now. Giants and Patriots have changed in that. You know, Belichick was uh, in '96. What you know, coming off a bad tenure in Cleveland, we didn't know he'd become Vince Lombardi on steroids at that point. Um, so, you know, I, I think the allegiance from a regional standpoint for fans hasn't changed, but the things in our backyard have definitely changed here in Connecticut where, you know, UConn, UConn football, they were 1AA in 96. Um, while the seven straight leas- losing seasons have happened, you know, they went to the Fiesta Bowl. I mean, lots mm-hmm. changed in 22 years. Speaking of UConn football, you also did
0: sideline reporting for yeah. UConn football. Were you with them before they made that jump to uh, Division One in FBS football?
1: Yeah, so I got... To be part of the UConn football network in '03 when they moved to the new stadium, I was the pre and post game host. Did some halftime stuff. Wasn't the sideline reporter. That didn't happen for a few years, but um, it was fun. I mean, it was fun to watch them go from Memorial Stadium to the Rent, where it was sold out that first season. Many of those games, and they shocked everybody with a nine-win season. Didn't get to go to a bowl, but they were, you know, at least five years in my opinion ahead of where they ever should have been to go nine and three the first year in the stadium go eight and four the next year first year of the big east and go to a bowl game you know I, I still say randy edsel doesn't get enough credit for the building job he did people say well, it was eight and four eight and four at connecticut hey, hello people seven straight losing seasons you realize he worked some miracles back yeah. then
0: now i think everyone would be jumping for joy absolutely at, at eight and four and, and kind of wishing to go back to those days uh so kind of we, we've hit a you know, the Whalers leaving in your first year, the growth of UConn, what would be some of the biggest moments that you've covered uh, in your time here at NBC?
1: Gosh, I mean, it would have to sort of break it down three ways. One would be, you know, the big sort of national regional stories. So, I mean, I was blessed. I covered that whole Yankees dynasty in the late 90s. I was there, you know, in the locker room for many of those celebrations. Uh, I covered the Red Sox breaking the curse and the, you know, ALCS comeback and, and the first clinching win of a World Series at Fenway Park in 2013. So there's that. Patriots Giant Super Bowls, I was there for that. The other Patriots run in this dynasty, I was on the field for, for those moments. Um, you know, internationally, I've covered five Olympics. Uh, the highlight probably of all, Jimmy Shea from down the road here in West Harper winning gold in skeleton in '02. So there's that. Then there's sort of the, the hyper local moments, you know, all the UConn Championships, I guess for me most notably 99 with the with the men breaking through, winning their first title with Rip Hamilton, Khalid El-Amin. Um, any number of the women's championships, you know, the thing that's always stood out about genos teams, the players are just such sweethearts. They're just good people. I mean, if any of those women were your daughter, you, you you'd go to sleep uh, with a smile on your face at night. I mean, just great people. Um, and then, you know, the, the Central Connecticut's, the covering the Frozen Four, Quinnipiac. I would argue that in my 22 years here, I covered more championships than any sportscaster in that period of time in the history of television. Because you cut, you know, Patriots, Giants, Red Sox, Yankees, um, all the UConn championships, and then throwing some frozen fours. Yeah. Uh, Unbelievable. And then the other thing, you know, that third prong of it would be just the hyper-local stories about people that no one would know necessarily, but they're human interest stories and they're things that touched me. And so, you know. People always ask, do you miss sports? I had an incredible run. I'm, bl- I'm blessed. I, I look back, I'm like, I can't believe I got to do all this stuff. And, you know, I, no knock on Buffalo, but I could have worked in Buffalo for 22 years and never covered a single championship. Yeah. And I covered like 30 of them, literally.
0: And it's amazing to think for a, a state that's not known for having a professional sports presence. To still get to get, be involved with all of those different championships across across the sports spectrum there.
1: Yeah, I mean, you get the best of both worlds here in sports. You get to cover, you know, two of the best sports markets in the world, Boston and New York. Uh, and then you have UConn in your backyard, plus all of our colleges, the Wesleyans, the Trinities, the Yales, the Quinnipiacs, et cetera, um, And then all the great hyper-local stories from high schools and youth sports and whatnot. And then, oh, by the way, because we're an NBC affiliate, I've gone to five Olympics. So it's... It's I've uh, been a very lucky person, very blessed man.
0: Yeah, talk about some of the, the local sports stories, you, you know, that kind of stuck out to you. What What's the high school sports scene uh, like in the state, you know, some of those things you've covered?
1: Sure. I mean, I guess from a high school sports perspective, you know, one thing that will always stand out is doing a piece years ago on the Hernandez family, you know, before Aaron passed, before their father Dennis died. And, and look, I'm. we know Aaron Hernandez did some horrific things. I'm not here to... Uh, um, add to that or take away from that. I'm just saying as an observation. The story was about DJ Hernandez being the high school athlete of the year. And I think it was '04. We interviewed Aaron, DJ, who now goes by Jonathan, and their late father, Dennis. And uh, I'll never forget interviewing the Dad, Dennis, about you know what it meant to see his boys play high school football together. And he said the greatest moment of my life when he started crying was seeing DJ throw a touchdown pass to Aaron. So it, it's it's stories like that. Steve Dalkowski probably is the story that stands out the most. He is considered the fastest pitcher of all time. Grew up in New Britain, Connecticut. Uh, once struck out uh, 24 batters in a minor league game. Walked 16. Threw 242 pitches in that game. Um, the day he was called up by the Orioles to pitch in the bigs, this is a guy who Cal Ripken Sr., the late Cal Ripken Sr., took 110 miles an hour. He, he blew out his arm and never made it. He he ended up in a convalescent home with dementia, alcohol, contributed to onset dementia and um, you know to tell his story about how fast he could throw baseball breaking umpire's masks you know throwing the ball 400 feet from center field and and to have the ability to tell an eight-minute story on local TV where we had a format to play that that st- the Steve Dalkowski story if you ever want to google something Google my name with Dalkowski in that story um, we had no video to work with of him we did interview him and others for the piece but what he did, he, the the character Nuke Lucian, Bill Durham, is loosely based on Steve Dalkowski. Huh. Um, our former colleague Tom Monaghan used to say, Oh, I batted against this guy in high school, fastest pitcher of all time. Little 5'10 lefty throw 110. And I'm like, come on, Tom, just 100. go cover <laughs> politics and stuff. And then I saw a little blurb in a paper, and I said, Wait, Monaghan wasn't making this up. Who's this Dalkowski guy? And I apologized to Tom. I interviewed Tom for the piece. And... Uh, he really was arguably the fastest pitcher of all time, but it's the backstory yeah. that makes it even more fascinating that he never pitched in the big. That Ted Williams once got in the box and said, "Uh-uh," took a few pitches and said, "I'm out of here. I don't want to bat against this guy because he wow. was so fast, but also so wild. Yeah, you, know, you, you didn't know where the ball was going. That. Yeah, no. yeah, that, that, that's <laughs> a
0: cool story. And I think that's you know definitely one of the perks of, of what you're doing here in sports is getting to cover those big national stories. Yeah. But also being able to, you know, really hit those stories that hit home here, here in the state.
1: You know, listen, um, it would be presumptuous presumptuous of me to say that I could have worked at ESPN. But when I got here, that was my goal. When I got here in 96, I thought, oh, launching pad, ESPN down the road. Then I got here, I thought, you know, I've got a pretty nice life. I kind of have balance. I'm not on the road a lot, but I'm on the road enough to see bigger sports. I can have autonomy to cover the things in our backyard. And I'm not just going to read off the teleprompter. I'm going to get to do things in our in our community. And that's what connected me and made me feel like this was the place to be. So it is those stories. And it still is now in news. Yeah. I, I love getting out and telling stories.
0: Yeah, so talking about that shift to news, what are the sim- similarities you've seen in covering news and, and sports? You know,
1: I think they are remarkably similar and I think it's why and I you know say thanks to all the trailblazers around the country it's a big trend where sports people move to news if you have equity in a market and people kind of know you and there's a familiarity you, you see sports anchors reporters move to news so I thank the ones who came before me so the management here said oh this is a transition that, that might work for Kevin It's the same exact thing, Jared, it's who, what, why, where, when, how, it's answering those questions, it's finding an emotional connection with a story. You know, I always think of Jim Valvano's speech on the ESPYs, to me, good reporting is the same way, does it make you think, laugh, or cry? If it does all three, you know, you you hit a home run. If it does one of those things, you're on to something, because then there's an emotional connection. You know, I covered the primaries for the first time last week, I was in the Lamont camp with Ned Lamont and um it felt like a sports story you know yeah. it's like okay this is a competition who's gonna win and why and what are the storylines? and tell the story it, it, almost identical minus maybe the 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 great video you get in sports in fact my former colleague here jw stewart who's at wtic radio now he used to say every night in sports is election night yeah. so my joke last week was that election night really is election <laughs> night <laughs> so
0: Talk a bit about how the job has changed from when you started when you started, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter. It, it was a different world back then. How, how has it changed from when you started?
1: I think obviously you know the responsibility we have to, to be out there on social media is is one big difference. but the other part of it and that's the obvious thing, the other part of it is how we tell stories and and how we frame things. So often now, stories that we're putting on the news or in sports have already been out there on some level in social media. So what can we do in television to differentiate ourselves? So that to me is where that emotional component is so critical, connecting you with the viewer. Because I may may be the only journalist who thinks this way, but in the information age, okay, the just—it's just scratching the surface. Everybody's going to have the information. It's how you package it and how we can package it better than you can get on social media and some riff-raff outlet that may not vet things well. You know, How credible are we and how well can we tell the story and what can we do in the way of adding to that story some context and meaning to make it more powerful. So it makes our job harder in some ways, but it also makes it more interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, and I think you have the opportunity now to connect with viewers in a different way too than you know you could have when you first started. You oh know, yeah, I mean You know, I redid
1: my deck a few months ago. My gosh, like, uh, social media—they could see me back breaking my back <laughs> out there and on a cold April day. And uh, there you go. Yeah, tw- like, he's 20 <laughs> twenty years ago, I would have been tweeting at you instead of yeah. calling the station here. Right now, they're being... like, uh, you know, gosh, he's as big a moron as
0: we <laughs> are. Look at him out there. <laughs> so. And, and I, I think you brought this up earlier in in some of the events you've covered, it, being the Olympics. And, and I think that's kind of a nice crossover area between news and sports because you're definitely talking about news at a higher level there. Um, you know, bringing the politics into it, things of that nature. What was it like covering an Olympics? Uh, you know, just being there, seeing the ceremonies, the the games itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, each one's special. I will say, you know, the opening ceremony I've seen once. I've never been to a closing ceremony in my veteran years I'm managing to get to a few more actual events but the reality is as great as an experience it is and I am so fortunate to cover five Olympics and I hope it becomes six in Tokyo in a couple of years um, it is an incredibly hard work assignment every day is a 16-hour day you were grinding 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 but it is so special because it's the it's it's the world coming together in a peaceful way I know that's cliche and it, it but it's true yeah. it's like I was I just went to South Korea in February, and I was like, oh no, the North Korea, and look at what's changed in the world. Now we're actually talking to North Korea, and I'm not saying because of the Olympics, but the idea that the world puts all the things down, and aside for those two and a half, three weeks, the Olympics are, it is it is the most special sporting event, period, and there's not even a close second. I love covering the Olympics, and they're all different. Salt Lake City, you no know, two was unique because it was four five months after 9-11. Yeah. So there was security issues and it was a rallying point for the country at that point. My next Olympics was 2012 in London. I loved it because it reminded me of New York City, but a thousand years older, a thousand plus, um, in the way of the architecture and everything. And, um, and it was English speaking, so that made it easy. 14, being in Russia, you know, I grew up in New Hampshire, very conservative place, and, you know, the Cold War back when I was a kid, and to be in Russia where the people were gracious and welcomed us, and again, this is not a political here, I'm not, you know, what Putin does or anything, but it's just for those weeks in a sporting context, it was wonderful. 16, we're in Rio, a spectacular spot, and then South Korea, you know, where people were just so friendly and gracious and warm. And... Um, took so much pride in hosting the Olympics each one's unique, each one's special and uh, I mean, I hope I get to go again, I, I love covering the Olympics. Is there
0: one that sticks out as, as the most memorable one you're at? It, it seems like there are distinct yeah, you know, I, memories you've got from each of them that really all, stick out
1: They're all special, I think for me 2012 was a turning point and it had less to do with what happened in the way of stories or even where we were it was that I met a couple of people within the NBC ranks, a couple of colleagues um, from other stations, and you know what I've come to realize is, you know, as you get older, you're really, you learn what you don't know, and it wasn't even so much how these guys reported, because you watch all the other reporters from the stations and you pick things up, it's how they conducted themselves. One guy, Bruce Beck, is the sports director in New York, the other person I'm thinking of is Vais Sikahemov, played for the Eagles, and was the sports guy in Philly for years now as a news anchor, and these are just two of the warmest. Um, most genuine, authentic souls you will ever meet, and, you know, they they motivated me to, to, to do better in everything, and I have a long way to go to be in their league, but that's sort of the, they're the gold standard, and, um, you know, Vi was very much somebody who encouraged me to look into news, and I, and I did, and this whole thing happened, and Bruce just... It's just so amazing with people and uh, and so so passionate about the Olympics and telling stories that their energy enthusiasm and class I I, I learned a lot from those guys.
0: That's great. So let's kind of go with some rapid fire questions sure. here. Who would you say is the best player you've covered in your time here in sports? Is there one person that sticks out or two? Local? Yeah. Or or or, or, or we could go you know at, at a professional level as well.
1: I mean. Tom Brady. I'm a Giants fan, but I thought he was the goat 10 years ago, greatest of all time. And you know, okay, he has three Super Bowl losses now, but he also has what five wins? He's yeah. been to eight. They've been to the AFC Championship game, and they get seven years running. Um, it's not just the numbers; it's the poise, it's it's the it's the winning and the, and the attitude he takes. and You know I think Tom Brady's you know gotten a little quirky maybe to a little California you know with his avocado ice cream and going to bed at nine o'clock but you know what Um, all kidding aside and no not knocking California teasing here it's from there he he, to be 41 and to have his work ethic and drive unbelievable the only person uh, Jeter would be in that on that list Larry Burr I didn't cover, but I got to ask a question to once, so I'll count that. Um, but but Brady is, is the goal standard. I mean, there's been so many great UConn players over the years. I mean, I love Sue Bird and Tamika Williams and Swim Cash from that team. And obviously, Diana Taurasi would probably be at the top of the list with the women's players. For the men, that's a harder thing. Maybe Kemba, um, maybe Rip. Kind of got to the tail end of Ray. But from an overall standpoint of everybody, it's it's got to be Brady.
0: All right, interesting. What What's more of a, an exciting event to cover for you, a World Series or a Super Bowl?
1: Oh, boy, that's tough. I mean, you know, I guess if it's a Game 7 or if it's a clinching game, I would say World Series is comparable to the Super Bowl, but the Super Bowl probably trumps it. Um, but it's tough because, I mean, I cover World Series at Fenway at Yankee Stadium where you don't have the homogenized world of the Super Bowl. So as I really yeah. think about it, I might actually say World Series because when you're at the ballpark of the team that can clinch, there's something different than when you're at Super Bowl, where it's a little more sterilized, homogenized environment. Yeah, it's so corporate. Yes, they're fans of the respective teams, but a lot of people there are neutral. They're just there because they've got, you know, yeah. cash to buy a Super Bowl ticket.
0: Does the Final Four feel the same way as the Super Bowl, where it's kind of a mixed environment? It doesn't L- kind of have that same atmosphere. A little bit. Yeah. Like
1: for me, my greatest basketball moments covering things are not Final Fours. It's covering Central, winning their, their, their NEC 100%. tournament. You know That is what March Madness is. People storming the court and going nuts. That is quintessential March Madness. And then the other thing for basketball for me would be going back to the Big East days for the, for the men's tournament in Madison Square Garden. I was young and I had a family and I always felt guilty you know, leaving the house. And I look back and I'm like, man, I didn't appreciate covering that. I told Jim Calhoun that a couple years ago. He goes, Kevin, you covered the greatest basketball conference in the history of the sport. (laughs) I'm like, I did coach you. It's true. It was incredible.
0: Yeah. Talk a bit about dealing with some of these coaches we've had in Connecticut. You know, we definitely have some coaches with a lot of personalities, uh, a lot of different personality types.
1: Um, I mean, I loved covering Jim Calhoun and Gina Auriemma. Uh, You know, maybe it's just my style because I'm not that contentious and I tend not to be... Uh, I don't know if edgy is the right word when I covered sports. I just was uh, to tell a story. I never had run-ins with those guys, um, but you know, a couple of moments they got ornery for various reasons. I mean, I was somebody that was outspoken about Nikisha Sales giving, getting the free basket when she ruptured her Achilles against Villanova. Um, and you know Gino took a lot of heat for that back in 98 I guess it was. It's funny though, years later I said to Gino this is after I had kids, I said Gino now that I'm a parent of three kids I totally get it and I, and I respect what you did and I kinda liked it. Like, yeah. It's funny how your perspective changes as you get older. What was so great about Jim Calhoun and Gino is they're both such well-read interesting people with different sense of humor but great sense of humor and just authentic and real. Anytime you put a microphone there we had a chance to get gold and they made our job so easy. Randy Edsel, I'm a big fan of too. Randy's maybe not um, as dynamic in the way of interviews as those guys, but I certainly respect him and, and what he stands for and his work ethic and, and what he's done for UConn football and what he hopes to try to do again. Were you were
0: you on the sideline with post-Randy uh, Edsel when you got the Paul Pascaloni, Bob Diaco day? Oh yeah,
1: I was there for all that. I, mean, I was also there you know, talking about memorable moments when they beat Notre Dame, that's in my top two or three. My grandfather went to Notre Dame, it's the only time I've seen a football game there. I've been a Notre Dame fan since I was a kid, but, you know, inside that day, to see the Huskies win was, uh-huh. was pretty special, and and given that, you know, a month earlier Jasper Howard had been killed on campus, and what that team had been through collectively and individually, that was something I will never ever forget.
0: Yeah, so while we're, while we're talking on UConn, probably another rapid fire question here Could you see uconn being in another power five conference at at some point or do you think where they are now is kind of where they're stuck
1: tough to say i mean again it's chicken and egg the dominoes have to fall so if the dominoes fall and there's an opening why not uconn but they got to get football going they got to put people in the seats because if there's another opening or two or three uh first thing they are gonna look at is football football attendance football revenue football passion If it was about basketball everybody kind will be any conference they want a long time ago.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you see Randy Etzel being able to rebuild this
1: program again? I think he'll rebuild it to respectability. Can he get back up to consistent 8-9 seasons and bowl games every year? Maybe. Um, I think it's harder now. I think the league is, is a little less difficult than before, but not much less. But I think it's harder to recruit to Connecticut in this league than the other leagues. Then you might say, well, well, what about SMU? It's hard for them to recruit. The difference is SMU's in Texas, Tulsa's in Oklahoma. We don't have a lot of Division One football players in Connecticut. So, you know, I think it's a harder sell now. Yeah. But if anybody can do it, it's Randy. I think it was a great move bringing him back. He has, you know, look, forget what happened, how he left. You know, it wasn't the best way, but he's a man of integrity. He's a good coach, surrounds himself with good people. And if anybody can do it, it's Randy. But I don't. I'm not so sure that it will be back to where it was consistently, but I hope I hope it is. So yeah. It'll be great for the state. And sa-
0: Same question for basketball. You see UConn basketball getting back on track. and
1: See, I, I'm a little different with basketball because in basketball you don't need an army. You know, if you can get those two or three kids a year, and I think the UConn brand for basketball it's still, still carries a lot of weight because you can bring a recruiter and show them those championship batter. So I know some of these kids might go, 99, 04, or Mecca, before, Ben Gordon, who are these guys? But I think basketball has a better chance. I mean, look, if Gonzaga can be a mid-major Final Four contender every year for 20 years, um, why can't Connecticut out of the AAC? Football, I think it's more difficult. Again, basketball, you know, two or three kids a year. Football, you need an army, and we just don't produce enough football players in Connecticut. Yeah.
0: So I think I, I kind of wrap up, we can end with everyone's favorite question. You, you ever think there'll be another professional team here in Hartford?
1: Do you see the Whalers coming back? I'll clarify only insofar as being kind to the yard goats and son. There are a pro, pro teams, yeah. but major pro teams. Because yeah. I made that, I always would say that, and then I'd get a call from the Sun, What do you mean we have pro sports? <laughs> um, major pro sports. I think for that to happen, it's again chicken and egg. You know, the Argots is a start. We have to bring back a Hartford. You know, you're a millennial. You've got to get your 26-year-old something, somethings to, to move there. Um, you know, this market is not the market it was in the way of business, commerce, and numbers that it was 30 years ago. So, to convince an NHL or NBA to come here, I think it's a long shot. I think the NHL will be the best shot. But, you know, never say never. If Hartford has some massive renaissance in the next 15 years... Anything's possible, but as it stands today, I don't right. think we're a candidate at all. That's just me.
0: Do we get a new Excel Center in the next? I think that's part of that chicken so. and egg. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think. And again, it's it's does Hartford start to come back? Are the yard goods sort of that anchor that creates more interest than housing, than grocery stores and infrastructure? Do you get baby boomers becoming empty nesters? Some of them are already doing it, but in droves, saying out of West Hartford and Glastonbury, I'm going to move to Hartford in an apartment and now you have more people, or just people from the suburbs willing to go support. You could make the case, a brand new Excel Center for hundreds of millions of dollars would be attractive for an NHL team, could be a driving force, but then as a taxpayer, and I'm not answering this, I'm news, Mm -hmm. I'm down the middle now, but to you, uh, Joe taxpayer, Jennifer taxpayer, do you want to support a four or five hundred million dollar brand new Excel Center when we should perhaps be spending that money elsewhere in a budget. These are all questions that you know, have to be vetted, but I'd say again, today as it stands, Hartford's not a great candidate, but things change. We'll see. Thanks to uh, Kevin for joining us today. Uh, Jared, you had a, had you, a great you, you talk. It, look at you, you're a young man. I mean, amazing what this guy's done. He used to call here when he was 10 years old, ask me questions, and I will say this, he is as polite now as he was oh, then, thanks, and everybody. it's great to see him have so much success. He deserves it. He's like, this is a great guy
0: oh thanks Kevin and be sure to watch Kevin on NBC Connecticut
1: yes four o'clock news till five o'clock and five thirty to 6 with my buddy Carrie Lee Mayland and um, it, it's been a lot of fun transitioning to news everybody has asked do you miss sports and no because I can still follow sports if they said you can't be the sports director and you can never watch sports again I would have had a problem with that but this was a mutual decision no not I mean no BS here. Station wanted it. I wanted it. I'm home at 6.30, 7 o'clock every night. It's been a great blessing, and uh, Perfect. it's fun doing something different.